Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Muir, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Well, we've got another big win to talk about today. Hell yeah, we do. We are talking all about Democrats' huge special election victory down in Florida for the state house. Then we are going to be covering the many twists of the special session of the Louisiana legislature that is devoted to drawing a new congressional map. And then coming up after the break, our guest this week is Edward Siegel, who is the author of a fascinating new book on whistle-stop campaigning. Yes, we are talking about campaigning by train and its glorious history in the United States. It is a fascinating talk and we have a fantastic episode. So let's get rolling. Hell yeah, David Beard. We are starting 2024 off with a huge special election flip, just like we did last year. Yes, let the fun continue. Another big win to mark in the column. Well, as I'm sure down ballot listeners know, Democrat Tom Keene, Navy veteran, won on Tuesday night, 5149 in the 35th State House District in the Orlando suburbs. This was a Republican held seat. So it is a flip for the Democrats in Florida, a state that lots of folks have written off. And it's also the second black eye for DeSantis in as many days, coming literally the day after he got creamed in the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, it's so much fun to watch DeSantis lose and then lose again. Hopefully he can just keep losing throughout the year and into you know 2026 and we'll never have to see him again. I would really love that. I, I, we, we know he's going to lose the next election because he's going to get his ass kicked in, in New Hampshire too. <laughs> and I, I forgive me for talking about presidential politics, but beating up on DeSantis, I, I can't resist. Yeah, and in New Hampshire, he's going to get like, I don't know, like 4% or something. Obviously, I haven't paid a ton of attention to it, but I don't think he's even like in the realm of competitive in New Hampshire. So that'll be a nice little button on these past two elections for him. Well, the amazing thing is that just like his debacle of a presidential campaign, this wound was completely self-inflicted by Ron DeSantis. Last year, he decided to appoint a crony in the state house to a cush gig running a state college that pays $250,000 a year. He could have picked anyone else. In fact, he should have picked anyone else because that dude that he picked, Fred Hawkins, had no experience in higher education whatsoever. But DeSantis obviously wanted to reward an ally, and he was arrogant enough to tap a guy in a district that Biden had won by five points. Now, it's very possible that DeSantis felt cocky because he, Ron DeSantis, had carried the district by 13 points. And with the way the Florida GOP has been believing their own hype, he might have thought that this district was completely out of reach for Democrats. But at the same time, DeSantis also radiated this weird anxiety. I guess everything he radiates is weird. Yeah, I just remember that photo that was taken. I think it was after a natural disaster where like Joe Biden has his arm around someone and is very like engaged and Ron DeSantis is just walking off looking, you know, very not engaged with anyone, very off-putting. I'm just like, that's Ron DeSantis, very off-putting. 
Exactly. And the vibes he was sending out here were also off-putting, at least if you're a Republican. For progressives, they were awesome. At first, DeSantis refused to call a special election altogether. This has been a pattern with him. He has dragged his feet in calling special elections, particularly in black districts, but here it was in a Republican district. And then when he finally did call the election with a possible lawsuit looming, he made sure to schedule it for the day after the Iowa caucuses. And Tom Keene said what everyone was thinking, which is that DeSantis didn't want to risk going into Iowa with a fresh special election loss in his home state on his resume. But guess what? It didn't matter at all. He still got his ass kicked in Iowa, just like we knew he would. And then he got embarrassed at home the very next day. Yeah, and I really can't imagine that any Iowa voters would have cared. Obviously, we're thinking in this other scenario where DeSantis was competitive in Iowa and was actually trying to, you know, win a primary or a caucus, as the case may be. And imagine that this had happened a week or two ago and they had lost this district. Obviously, you know, we would have been happy. It would have been fun on Twitter. I doubt any Iowa Republican caucus goers would have cared about this. <laughs> so the delay was really pointless, but it did make it fun for us to see him lose back to back. That's a really good point. That was some galaxy brain thinking, which seems to have dominated DeSantis's life for the last year and a half. But let's look ahead and talk about what this victory actually means. First things first, this makes Democrats' job of breaking the GOP's supermajority in the state house a lot easier. It takes the number of flips they need from six seats down to five seats in November. Second, though, this is another strong Democratic performance in a high-profile Florida election since the midterm landslide that DeSantis won. In May of last year, Democrat Donna Deegan won a huge upset in the race for Jacksonville mayor, which we talked about on the show before. That's Florida's biggest city. And not only that, DeSantis had won Jacksonville by double digits in 2022, much like he carried the 35th State House District. So Deegan moved the needle about 15 points, and then Keene moved it about 16 points. So it looks like there's maybe a pattern starting to form here. But I think that after Tom Keene himself, the person that this win probably matters the most for, who we were talking about recently on the show, is former Congresswoman Debbie Mukersell Powell, who, of course, is running for the Senate against Rick Scott. Mukersell Powell was a big Keene booster. She campaigned with him multiple times, including the weekend right before the special election. And she really needs outside Democratic groups and big donors to invest in her race. Keene's victory is a very strong argument in her favor. I think what this election combined with the Jacksonville election proves is that Florida is not the Florida of 2022 in perpetuity. Obviously, we all know how bad Democrats' performance was in 2022 in that state. Turnout had collapsed. It was terrible, just terrible performance. But that doesn't mean it's something that's going to continue into this year or into 2026, 2028 you know, forever. It was one election. And we've seen now with these past two elections where both parties have gone in and really tried to win, that the Florida Democrats have been seeing results more like the elections before 2022 than that terrible year. So that makes me a little more confident that Florida Democrats can get past 45% into, you know, the upper 40s in a competitive statewide election. 
you know, the question that's still unanswered, as we saw before 2022 in those previous cycles, is can they get over the top? That's what they struggled with before the disaster selection was getting from, you know, 47, 48, 49 to 50, 51. So that remains to be seen. But I think the good news here is that, like, Florida has not gone away as a competitive state. Yeah. And this race really signaled the importance of two core principles that have always motivated us at Daily Coast Elections. You should never read too much into the results of a single election. A lot of people were eager to conclude that Florida had become a deep red state after 2022, but you literally can't draw a trend line when you only have one data point. And the fact is that Democrats had to get back to this place of showing they could be competitive. The first step after a drubbing like that isn't to win a statewide race, get 51%, whatever. It's like you said, Beard, to show that you can really play this game and get back into that territory where you know you're going to at least be getting in the 40s, that you're not going to wind up at 39% of the vote like Charlie Crist. The other thing that I really want to emphasize that is so core to our philosophy is that you have to play the long game. That's what this is part of. There is a very long road ahead for Florida Democrats, but at last we are moving forward rather than backward. And you really can't overestimate how motivating a victory like this is for folks on the ground who really have been taking so much abuse and getting so beaten up, I think often to excess by the national media, by pundits, by democratic operatives, many of them unnamed, this is a huge shot in the arm for them. And making people believe that they can win is absolutely the first step to winning. Yeah, and we've seen that in other states where Democratic parties get really beaten down in states that are very red, and it becomes hard for the party to function, to then even win seats like this that are, you know, in 2020, Biden won this seat. So it's something that Democrats should at the least compete in and, and be close. And if not, obviously, like they did on Tuesday night, win. And we see state parties that have sort of collapsed, not even be able to compete in places like that. And so this is a good sign for them. It's like you said, an opportunity for the Florida Democrats to start moving forward and to start looking at gains in 2024, as opposed to the terrible losses of 2022. And it's also really bears pointing out that Democrats got outspent here. We don't know the exact figures, but Republicans definitely spent more than Democrats did here. And they still wound up losing this race. So that is just a very positive sign for Team Blue in Florida. There's one final note that I have to make. I am very proud of our coverage of this race at Daily Coast Elections. In fact, we started writing about it before it even was a race. Back when DeSantis was refusing to schedule the special election, this was half a year ago. And we've been covering it closely ever since. We endorsed Tom Keene in November, right after he won the Democratic primary. And I am just super proud of this victory. If you want the earliest possible notice of where the next battleground will be, stick with Daily Coast Elections. And like we said, obviously one data point isn't a trend line, but not to pat Daily Coast elections on the back too much, but this has been a recurring theme where Daily Coast has been able to identify these races, invest in them, you know, and make these special elections come to the forefront and, and get money directed where it needs to go when it comes to our grassroots supporters. 
Now, the other story that we want to talk about here during the weekly hits is a doozy. So stick with me as I try to run through all of the twists and turns. This is about Louisiana and their current ongoing congressional redistricting. The last time that we touched on this, a federal judge had ordered the state to draw a second district where black voters could elect the candidate of their choice, very similar to the previous case that we've discussed a lot in Alabama, where a second district was eventually implemented by a judge and you know they're going to elect likely a second Democrat in the fall. Now, Louisiana currently has five white majority safe Republican districts and one black majority safe Democratic district, despite black voters making up about a third of the population. So obviously with six districts, about a third of the population should represent about two districts. Now, unlike Alabama, where we saw the state GOP just utterly refused to ever engage with this process and just went down fighting it the whole way, GOP leaders in Louisiana seem open to creating the second district, but not really out of any sense of doing the right thing. No way. No. They're doing it for one of the oldest reasons in politics, to punish their enemies and reward their friends. Oh, hell yeah. Now, new GOP governor Jeff Landry, he doesn't like one of the GOP representatives, Garrett Graves. Graves helped recruit Landry's most prominent GOP rival for governor last year, and he also made Steve Scalise mad when he didn't back Steve Scalise's short-lived attempt to be speaker. So Graves has made some key enemies among the Louisiana GOP. But as much as Landry hates Garrett Graves, he apparently is close buddies with State Senator Cleo Fields, who, interestingly enough, is not a Republican. Fields is a Black Democrat who used to represent a district in Congress in the 1990s in Louisiana. Last year, he reportedly did not do very much to help Landry's Democratic opponent in the race for governor. The claim that was reported was that Fields, yes, he did endorse Sean Wilson, but he really didn't do much beyond that supposedly because he's tight with Landry. And in Louisiana, we see these weird situations of strange bedfellows, unusual alliances between Democrats and Republicans that really seem to have fallen by the wayside in most other states by this point. In any event, Wilson lost in a total blowout to Landry, who is now in a position to reward his friends. And it seems like Cleo Fields is interested in returning to Congress. Now, if you're asking yourself, wasn't the 90s kind of a long time ago? Well, Cleo Fields first got elected when he was 29. So that's why somebody who was congressman for two terms in the 1990s is making a comeback in the 2020s. And also, yes, if I made you feel old for thinking that the 90s was a long time ago, I do too, but that's where we're at now. Now, in the litigation that's pending, the plaintiffs have argued that the district that should be turned into the second black majority district is Representative Julia Letlow's seat. But she has a number of friends among the GOP. She's also the only woman representing Louisiana in Congress. And so most leadership doesn't want to target her. They instead want to target Graves, who is a nearby seat. It's not as straightforward to make this compact second black majority seat by going after Graves' seat, but it is doable to make that second district. Now, Graves is obviously pretty mad about this for obvious reasons. He's going to get redistricted out of Congress by his own party if this happens. He put out a, a big screed about how awful the district was, how you know it wasn't compact. It was 
combining Saints fans and Cowboys fans, which I felt like was a really strange direction to go in when you're trying to make like a legal political argument about something. But I guess he's desperate. I guess Shreveport must be cowboy country. Yeah, I'm also not sure that's the case. Uh, My grandmother lived in northern Louisiana, not quite as far as Shreveport, but they were all Saints fans up in northern Louisiana. So I'm not sure where he got that from, but he is a representative from Louisiana. So hopefully he's right about that. (laughs) The other person who's not very happy is Speaker Mike Johnson, of course. He thinks that the state GOP isn't trying hard enough to keep the five seats for Republicans. Johnson, of course, is also from Louisiana. We have this strange situation where both the Republican Speaker of the House and the Republican Majority Leader are both representatives from Louisiana, which is pretty unusual if you look back historically. So now we mentioned that Fields served for two terms in Congress back in the 90s. Why did his career end? Well, what happened back then is that at the urging of George Bush Sr.'s Justice Department, a number of Southern states run by whether Republicans or conservative Democrats decided that complying with the VRA would allow them to pack as many Black voters as possible into a smaller number of districts and therefore create more Republican seats. So in Louisiana, they drew a very weird Z-shaped district that ran along the state's border with Arkansas, then the border with Mississippi, then another part of the border with Mississippi that through this snaking narrow pattern managed to have a black majority. Well, the courts threw that out because they said that's an illegal racial gerrymander. What courts really don't like is when map makers look at a map and they identify members of a racial minority group and they try to hoover up as many of them as possible into a single district. That's what the courts call racial gerrymandering. And generally, you can't get away with that. So Louisiana replaced that map with another district that was sort of a jagged diagonal line, kind of a backslash that ran from... Shreveport in the northwestern corner, all the way down to Baton Rouge, the state capital, which is 250 miles away. This map was also struck down as a racial gerrymander. And here's the thing. That district, it was numbered the fourth in the 1990s. It was used only in the 1994 elections. Looks very, very similar to the map that Landry is pushing now to eliminate Garrett Graves. So if this map becomes law, there's a really good chance it once again gets struck down like its predecessor from 30 years ago as a racial gerrymander. So what the hell's going on here? Yeah, it's very strange. And of course, they do have a reason that they're doing this that is not racial, which is they want to protect Letlow and go after Graves. And so a course of at times sort of observed this distinction, obviously, between political and partisan reasons versus racial reasons, but obviously also The districts are very similar. So it it raises this question, is the GOP here trying to reenact a seat that's previously been struck down in some sort of hopes that it will also get struck down and sort of just like either delay the process or let them go back to the old map? It's it's not clear if they actually think if Landry believes, hey, we're going to put this map, the court's going to sign off on it, and I'm going to get my revenge Maybe it's as simple as that, but obviously we've seen the GOP be nefarious before. 
It could be all of the above. Landry could be eager to punish Garrett Graves. He could also have this nefarious second order reason of trying to delay the implementation of a compact district that would be compliant with the VRA and that would not be a racial gerrymander. Who knows? These are Republicans. They are totally dastardly. You can never ascribe good faith to them. And we know that you can't ascribe good faith to them here because Landry hates Garrett Graves. And like you said at the start, Beard, this is all about punishing him. Yeah, the maps have already started moving through the state legislature, which is in a special session, particularly about this redistricting. And that session ends on Tuesday, the 23rd. So there's not a lot of time to finalize this. I think the most likely outcome from the session, it seems, is that Landry will get his map passed. Obviously, we don't know that until it happens, but that seems like where it's heading. And then the biggest question is how the court will respond. Obviously, if this map gets passed by, you know, the Louisiana legislature and signed by Landry, the court could just accept the map and say they're the two districts that we required the legislature to enact. And the fact that they decided to do it that way is up to them. They could reject it for being a racial gerrymander and and bringing back that district from the 90s that gets struck down and instead draw their own map that has the two more compact black majority districts. Um, Or as this is a strange case, I guess something else could happen. But I think those are the two most likely outcomes. Well, we will be following future developments closely. And you know, the court will want to act as quickly as possible, given the short time frame for implementing a new map this year. That does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we have a fascinating conversation. We are speaking with author Edward Siegel, who is publishing a book called Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains and the Reporters Who Covered Them. Yes, we are going to be talking about campaigning by train. Stick with us after the break. I guarantee you will learn a lot. Joining us today on The Down Ballot is Edward Siegel, who is going to be talking with us about one of the most interesting and unusual topics we have ever covered on the show. Edward is the author of Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains, and the Reporters Who Covered Them. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Great to be with you today. So for listeners who may not know, since in a certain way, these are things of yesteryear, what is a whistle-stop tour, and how does it differ from just a regular campaign event? Well, a whistle-stop tour actually started in the uh, 1800s and grew as the uh, nation's railway grew. And the light went on and some of the politicians and say, hey, I could use trains to reach people. And uh, the, the, the longer the trains got and the system got, uh, the more politicians uh, warmed up to the idea. So campaign trains has been around for almost 185 years. And they have been a way for hundreds of politicians, uh, presidential, gubernatorial, congressional, even a few mayoral candidates, uh, to reach voters at uh, train stations and depots and sometimes uh, trackside rallies uh, across the country. They differ from regular train trips because these are usually specially configured trains with uh, at least two or sometimes many as 15 or 20 uh, additional passenger cars Uh, added onto the train. No other passengers or people can go on the train except those who are invited, reporters, staff members, VIPs, 
sometimes major contributors. So it's been a great way over the years to generate publicity, connect with voters, and I call it essentially political eye candy for great ways of generating news coverage and calling attention to the policies and uh, and platforms of uh, people running for office. So what got you interested in this topic? Obviously, this form of campaigning is no longer really a common practice, but obviously it was, it's been a major practice for many years in American history. So what caused you to want to write a book about this? Well, I actually had firsthand experience uh, organizing a campaign train uh, for a member of Congress from Oklahoma. I was a press secretary and the uh, member of Congress was looking for an attention-getting publicity friendly way to generate news coverage about his uh, efforts to get reelected. And I had knew, of course, in the back of my mind about Truman and his famous underdog campaign for the White House in 1948. And I did some digging and it turned out we had a set of tracks, Amtrak tracks, in the congressman's district. And I did some more research and we were actually able to rent a train uh, to do an old-fashioned Truman-style whistle-stop tour in uh through the middle of the state. And I really got interested in researching and writing a book because the more research I did at the time in an effort to provide background information to reporters about the trip, uh, I really could not find a lot of information in terms of whole books, an occasional article. So the more I dig, uh, the less I found. <laughs> and that's why uh, re- researching uh, the book, collecting stories and anecdotes, that became my hobby, uh, sometimes my obsession, and eventually uh, the book, which will be published uh, in February uh, of this year. We have a lot of history buffs who listen to the down ballot, so I'm sure our listeners would like to know if you're uh, comfortable sharing, who was that member of Congress that you were working for on that uh, whistle stop tour? Well, I've worked for both Republican and Democratic members of Congress in various capacities. In this case, I was a press secretary for uh, Mickey Edwards, uh, Republican member of Congress uh, from central Oklahoma. Turns out that although the tracks were usable, uh, Amtrak had discontinued several years before passenger service, and Edwards made it part of his uh, campaign platform and part of his speeches on the campaign train tour, his pledge to uh, do what he could to help uh, restore passenger ser- train service to Oklahoma. So you mentioned at the top of the show that Whistle Stop Tours began in the 19th century. When did they really take off and what would you describe as their heyday? And also, is there anyone in particular who gets credit for really being the first or is that something that might be lost to the mists of time? Well, there were various firsts. Uh, I I think though the person who deserves the credit for inventing what we consider to be the modern day campaign train trip was uh, William Jennings Bryan. Uh, when he ran for president in uh, 1896, although politicians before him had campaigned by train. Uh, Stephen Douglas in 1858, uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1858, when they were traveling around Illinois for the famous uh, uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates. And before that, there had been occasional candidates. But for many years, it was actually considered to be taboo to actually seek the office and do anything to overtly indicate that you wanted the office. The office was supposed to pursue the person. The person was not supposed to uh, go after the office. And that's why one reason uh, why uh, Brian got so much attention is because he was he had broke that taboo and he mounted a very attention-getting, newsworthy, crowd-generating campaign tour across the country. 
But the more research I did into this book, I kind of uh, batted down a couple of my own preconceived notions. I had thought that the heyday of campaign train tours was in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. But actually, there were more campaign trains in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s no kidding. than they were in the earlier part of the century. And actually, uh, they're, they're not dead and gone. Uh, Joe Biden campaigned by train for a few hours uh, in 2020. Uh, Peter Walsh, a uh, Senate candidate in Vermont, in 2022, only two years ago, he campaigned by train. So although they're not used nearly as much as they had been in the last century, they're still regarded as political eye candy. And if it makes sense for the politician and their staff, if they have the money, the resources, and the time, um, I would not be surprised if we see at least one campaign train tour uh, in this year's election season. So clearly, modern presidential candidates, they primarily use planes to you know, travel across the country and hit campaign stops from coast to coast all in the same day. And so you know, whistle-stop tours, obviously much, much less prominent than they were during the 20th century. Do you have one in mind that you think of as sort of the last really prominent whistle-stop tour that was maybe conducted by a, a presidential candidate across like a large stretch of the country or something like that? Well, I think uh, Bill Clinton's campaign train trip in uh, 1996 certainly fit the bill. Uh, he went uh, through the middle part of the country for several days on his way to the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And one of the reasons that they uh, organized the trip before the convention is that he was expected to get the nomination, kind of a slam dunk. So his uh, organizers and campaign strategists wanted to build in some uh, something appealing, something newsworthy, something to build up uh, the excitement and uh, generate attention uh, to uh, to the convention itself. And uh, that's why they came up um, with the trip. The trip, of course, made news. Um, his daughter Chelsea uh, was on the trip, and that was kind of her coming out to uh, meet the public and the media, and a lot of pictures and a lot of publicity about her uh, campaigning and shaking hands with uh, with her father from the back of the campaign train. I think that's a great example of one of the uh, more recent campaign trips, and it went for several days. It'd be very rare to see a campaign trip last for several days now because of the cost, the time constraints. Uh, the scheduling conflicts that uh, candidate and staff w would have to deal with. And that's a big difference between campaign train trips now and uh, those that were done in the uh, mid or early part of the last century. Campaign train trips in the 30s, 40s, and 50s would last for days or weeks. It would cover thousands of miles across many states. You'd never see that today. A modern train tour this year would last probably only a few hours uh, and cover only a few hundred miles. But I still think it'd be very effective in doing what campaign trains did in the last century, and that's to generate attention, awareness, and publicity and get people excited about uh, a candidate. With the Clinton trip, you alluded to what I think is maybe the most iconic image, at least that I have in my mind, but I suspect a lot of people, of what a whistle-stop tour looks like, and that is the candidate speaking off of the caboose of the train to an assembled crowd. And earlier, you mentioned that the train itself was almost like a moving campaign headquarters on wheels, where you could invite the press or dignitaries, VIPs, etc. 
I just think that's a, a fascinating notion that you have this literal vehicle that is both for very private use, but also extremely public use when you pop off the rear car. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it was a caboose. More likely, it would have been a, a traditional a passenger car. Uh, but uh, either way, it had to have had a rear platform built on the back of the uh, the car so that the uh, candidate or staff and VIPs could come out and give their speeches. But you're absolutely right. Campaign trains were what we would regard today as a traveling visual. It was the most uh, attention-getting way that politicians uh, could get the attention of the press and the media. It was really exciting and hard to forget when you saw this giant steam locomotive, or in more modern times, a diesel engine pulling in slowly to a train station and the noise and commotion it would make. On top of that, there were often marching bands, cheerleaders, crowds yelling and screaming and clapping. It was quite a emotional, exciting, and a never-to-be-forgotten event by people who were there. And oftentimes, some politicians said it was the best, most enjoyable thing they had done on the campaign trip, and they thought that it was the best way to campaign for office. That's particularly interesting because nowadays you hear a lot of complaining about the campaign trail, and that's in large part because there's so much fundraising that modern candidates have to do that ends up taking so much of their time that there's less time to do the sort of interactions that you're talking about, like these whistle-stop tours that really put candidates in front of voters. Well, you're right. In fact, in, in some ways, the campaign trains were the Swiss army knife of politics. It was a way to generate news coverage. Hundreds of reporters would often accompany the candidates. The staff were working on speeches and presentations and generating news coverage. Uh, some candidates use the trains literally as a fundraising vehicle, <laughs> as a way to help sell seats on the train or to award uh, uh, major donors with the opportunity to uh, be on the train. In earlier days, the trains would make so many stops that the trains would take on different delegations of local VIPs or dignitaries, welcoming committees, who would get on the train miles before it arrived at the train station and give the opportunity of the local political dignitaries to shake hands and schmooze with the politician. And then the politician would introduce the VIPs when the train got to the station. So it was really a win-win for fundraising, publicity, um, schmoozing, making points, and getting the support of people. So what are some of the aspects of a whistle-stop tour that regular voters wouldn't think of in terms of practically getting it set up and making it happen? Well, you can't wake up one morning and say, I know, I'm going to do a whistle-stop campaign tour across the country. No, <laughs> it never happens. Uh, these kind of train trips require a lot of time, sometimes a lot of money, and certainly effort and organizational prowess to help make it work. Uh, they need advanced planning to scope out the best routes. Uh, to work out with the train companies or railroad firms, uh, the best routes, the available routes. And if you're talking about a uh, president or a presidential nominee, uh, security is going to be a big issue, whether it's a secret service or uh, additional uh, uh, police, uh, law enforcement. Sometimes the National Guards have been um, called out uh, to help. So these can be incredibly expensive events to pull off. And that's why it's not likely you're going to see a member of Congress uh, organizing a campaign train this year, although it's possible in a smaller state. You're more likely to see uh, 
President Joe Biden or whoever the Republican nominee turns out to be uh, bounding that, and uh, they would have the time, the resources, uh, the skills, and the staff to make it happen. Taking us to the present day, do you think there's any aspect of contemporary campaigning that you might consider a modern day successor to the Whistle Stop Tour? Well, I actually look at the other way around. I think that campaign trains set the tone and provide great examples for today's politicians on the strategies and tactics they can emulate. Uh, some of the basics, uh, such as go to where the voters are. <laughs> and that was one of the beauties of the train at the time. Sometimes if they knew there were people who wanted to see uh, the candidate, but there was no train station, they would just simply stop to where the people had gathered and do a trackside rally. So I think that was an important part of the success of, uh, of the campaign trains. The other thing that uh, people who uh, want to learn lessons from whistle-stopping politicians is uh, don't talk so much. The traditional rear platform campaign speech was lasted probably five or 10, certainly not more than 15 minutes. Um, why? Because these trains were usually on a very strict schedule. The politician had to say their piece, the train had to move on, and they did not want to uh, disappoint or be late for uh, the next depot rally down the road. Another important lesson for today's politicians is the importance of using props or visuals. Uh, in 1952, when a Republican nominee, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, was campaigning from the back of the train, um, he used about a three-foot-long piece of wood to help demonstrate what he claimed was the shrinking power of the dollar. That piece of wood was cut into two different places. He would hold up the piece of wood and say, this is what the dollar was worth before when FDR was uh, president. Then he'd chop off a piece of wood and said, this is what the dollar was worth, about a third, when FDR died in 1945. Pulled off that. And then he held up last foot or so and said, this is what the dollar is worth under the Truman administration. And that was a great effective visual that got people's attention, helped made his point. And I think politicians today would be well advised to remember that important lesson. Don't just talk about what you want to do. Show what you want to do. Just don't talk about a problem. Show the problem in some way. And by using a visual, it can be very effective not just to talk about the problem, but to the show the problem. And that is more likely to stick in the minds of reporters, could actually be on the news, and be a great way for people to remember as long as possible what you were saying, what you want to do, and what you thought the problems are. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that three-foot stick show up again on the campaign trail this year. It seems uh, suddenly uh, relevant again. But, you know, uh, Edward, maybe the most surprising thing that you have said on this interview so far is when the heyday of the Whistle Stop Tour actually was. And you said it was in the post-World War II era. I would have guessed uh, that with the rise of the automobile, that the real heyday would have been well before then. What do you think uh, accounts for that divergent trend that uh, with the rise of the interstate highway system and uh, increased auto ownership and also rail travel becoming less and less popular at that same time, you're saying that the whistle stop tours were really at their peak? Yeah, I think it had to do with a combination of factor. First, the demographics. It wasn't until the 1920 U.S. Census that was taken that showed more people were living in cities than in farms and in rural communities. 
and that uh, synced in nicely with the continued expansion of the nation's railroad system. And plane travel was just coming into its own. You certainly had, didn't have the kind of uh, airport systems we have now. More people knew where their train station was because it was often downtown or very centrally located, and it was much easier for them to get to their train station than uh, anywhere else in the county or the city. So that was a matter of convenience. People knew where the train station was. Train travel was big and accepted, and politicians took advantage of that. So it was a combination of demographics and the growth of the railroad system. But the growth of the automobiles in the country uh, was a benefit for whistle-stopping candidates. It made it easier for people to drive in their cars which were becoming more affordable. It, having more cars made it easier for more people to uh, take a short uh, drive to their train station. Uh, and sometimes there were so many cars coming to see the candidates uh, that the uh, the cars or the people traveling on foot uh, would surround the railroad stations, uh, shut down the streets, uh, uh, generated so much attention that schools and businesses would close for the day just to give everyone an opportunity to see uh, the local visiting uh, uh, president or uh, other well-known person running for office. I'm curious to know if in your research you learned that this was exclusively an American phenomenon or if these kind of train tours are something that politicians in other countries also have engaged in. Well, actually, I think the success of whistle-stopping candidates in the United States um, was a tip to politicians in other countries to adopt and mimic the tactic. And that's exactly what happened. The tactic was copied in Germany after World War II. It was copied in uh, Australia. It's been copied several times in Canada. And it's been a great way for politicians in other countries to do exactly what politicians in the United States have done, generate publicity, connect with voters, and help uh, use the trains to get the word out for their policies or programs or plans for the future. I have to admit, just talking about Whistle Stop Tours makes me excited to want to go see one. And I really hope that at least one politician does one this year. You'd think that Joe Biden, given his strong identification with Amtrak, would be the perfect person to do that in 2024. Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, he did campaign by train for a few hours in 2020, but it was not his first time. He actually, when he ran for president in the 1980s, he did campaign by train. So campaigning by training is not new to Joe Biden. Uh, you're right about his affinity for Amtrak. Uh, they actually named a tr- an Amtrak train station for him in, in Delaware a few years ago. So whether it's uh, Joe Biden or anyone else running for office, um, I really hope they will take a a lesson from past whistle-stopping politicians and try to campaign for office at least once during this election year from the back of a train. Well, we have been talking with Edward Siegel, who is the author of the forthcoming book, Whistle Stop Politics, Campaign Trains, and the Reporters Who Covered Them. Edward, where will readers be able to find a copy of your book? Will it be available on Kindle? And also, where can they find you online? They can find me online at my website, whistlestoppolitics.com. The ebook edition of the book is already available for pre-orders on Amazon, and the hardcover edition will be available for pre-orders uh, in uh, early next month. But the ebook and hardcover edition will go on sale wherever books are sold, as they say. 
There's also plans for an audiobook. So I hope people will visit my website, pre-order and listen or read the book. But I think it's a great education for all of your listeners about what I think is a forgotten history of campaign trains in American politics. And perhaps some uh, politician or their staff who's listening to this broadcast will say, you know, I think it'd be a good idea if we want the <laughs> campaign train tour. Uh, because uh, uh, it worked in the past, and I'm sure we could make it uh, work for us this year. Well, I hope we all get to take credit for that happening this year. Edward, thank you so much for coming on the Down Ballot this week. Thanks. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Edward Siegel for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our editor, Trevor Jones, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. <laughs>